Morning, church. Morning, church. Much better. There you are. Great to be with you this morning. As Pastor Dwayne mentioned, uh, Philippians chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. We've been popping in and out of Philippians over the last three years or so, as the Lord has allowed us. And that brings us to uh, this 10th message in the book of Philippians. And the reason that we've called this series Joy Unleashed is because it is the main theme of the letter that Paul writes to these believers at a church in a place called Philippi. This group of believers he loved and cared for so much, as we'll see in our passage this morning. He wants to know that there is joy, there is supernatural delight available to them in the plans, purposes, and people of God through a variety of means and a variety of circumstances. And one of those circumstances is what we find ourselves looking to this morning. That would be joy in kingdom citizenship. Now, I wonder if you've ever had a, I'm not from around here type moment. I certainly have. One of the ones that that sticks out significantly for me was uh, during an opportunity, my my family and I had to take a trip down to a town in Virginia. Uh, We had been driving for a few hours, finally arrived into the city that we were staying to find that everything was stopped. We got stuck at this stoplight for well over an hour, a state trooper blocking our way. Everything was shut down just minutes away from the glorious reprieve of our hotel room where we could finally get out of the vehicle, stretch and unpack, we were stuck. So after a few minutes, my dad finally rolls down his window, asks the guy beside him, man, what's going on? To which the guy replies, you're not from around here, huh? Turns out the president was in town. He was there making a speech. It was a momentous occasion for the people in this city, something they were so excited about, something they couldn't wait for. You couldn't get anywhere because his motorcade was rolling through soon. And this event was one of incredible excitement for the citizens of this town. We were completely unaware of. Where they were excited, we were exasperated because we just wanted to get to our hotel room. Have you ever experienced something like that? Have you ever had one of those times where it was very evident that the place that you were in was not somewhere you naturally belonged? It's not lost on me that some of you may be feeling that way being here at church this morning. I hope and pray that that changes for you even here today. But each place, each country, each city, each town, each individual household has characteristics that are unique. And those who belong to those places adopt those things. And when someone from the outside comes in, the differences are very evident. That is certainly the case for us as Christians. We don't belong here in the world that we live in. The things that characterize the followers of Jesus, if your life has been truly changed by the salvation that is offered through him, if you have been truly forgiven, freed, accepted, redeemed, justified, declared to be righteous, welcomed into the family of God, 
And you will be different than the world around you. The things that characterize you should be different than the world you live in. As the apostle Paul says in our passage this morning, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This world is not your home, follower of Jesus. Fact is, we should all be feeling this way about the world we live in, about the country of Canada we live in, whether we're an immigrant to this country or native born. We live in exile here as we await our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come again to take us home. But until then, as a citizen of heaven, I must live my life here and now as he calls me to. Which is what Paul unpacks for us here in Philippians chapter 3. Let's turn our attention to the text. Philippians 3, starting in verse 17, we'll go to the first verse of chapter 4. Follow along with me as I read. These are God's words to us this morning. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. We'll see four things this morning that should characterize us as citizens of heaven. See this first. I imitate the servants of Christ. I imitate the servants of Christ. Paul's initial comments in this passage, that first part of verse 17, when he says, join in imitating me can almost seem arrogant or prideful, egotistical to us. But in reality, they are anything but because imitation is a critical part of Christianity. What we live by and for and through is not a comprehensive list of rules for the entirety of our lives. It's not a set of moral guidelines. What we live by and for and through as Christians is primarily and entirely a person, Jesus Christ. The entirety of Christianity can be summed up in the phrase follower of Jesus. So we're saved by him and his message. We're moved then as those saved by him to follow him and to partake in the mission that he has left for us as his followers. The main goal of our lives as Christians is that we would grow every day in our Christ likeness. That is this process of sanctification that the Lord is working out in us, growing us every day into greater understanding of who he is, into greater obedience of him to live for his glory until the time he calls us home. Of this C.S. Lewis famously said, every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. 
We are to become little Christs. Obviously not in, in the divine sense. We will not have the same nature of, as Jesus, but most certainly in his character, we are to becoming like him. That's exactly what Paul is getting at here. Urging the Philippians to imitate himself and others in the pursuit of Jesus over everything. Now in saying that, Paul is not claiming that he's perfect. He's not claiming that he has all of this together. In fact, if you look up just a few verses before verse 12, he says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. But what Paul is saying is that he is confident enough in his walk with Christ. And the pattern of his life is so being shaped by the Holy spirit and his continued surrender to the work God is doing in his life through the spirit that he's willing to put his example forward as one to be followed, even with his struggles even with his inconsistencies and sinfulness. If you know anything about Paul, this was a classic thing for him to say. He said it in at least three other places in the letters that he wrote to the various churches, most notably 1 Corinthians 11, uh, chapter 11, verse one, be imitators of me, Paul writes, as I am of Christ. So the Philippians were to have his example in their sight. The Philippians were to have the example of Paul's companions, Timothy and Epaphroditus, who he's talked about already in this letter, chapter two, and the examples that they have of seeking after Christ in their sights to imitate. The Philippians are to have others in their absence, in their eyes, in their sight to imitate. That is the command Paul gives to them. Verse 17, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Keep your focus Keep careful watch on fellow believers who are seeking to imitate Jesus and imitate them. Why? Because who you watch, what you look at, what you focus on has an impact on who you are and who you will become. So find people who are living out this pursuit of Christ-likeness. Find people who are seeking to live like little Christs. Find people, Paul is saying, that are living out what he has instructed them to in the verses preceding. Things like verse 13, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward. Imitate believers who abandon their old dead ways of sinfulness Imitate believers who are putting behind the mistakes they made, aren't letting those define them anymore. Jesus has taken those. Imitate believers who are leaving behind even their successes, not resting on the laurels of the things that they've done before. But instead, those who press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, verse 14. Imitate believers who passionately pursue a greater knowledge of Jesus and who in everything are, verse 10, willing to share in his sufferings, who have the cross in full view, who are willing to take up their own cross every single day as Christ commands us and are willing to, as Paul says elsewhere, die to their old self daily.
Find other Christians in the church who are getting after this. Follower of Jesus. Find other believers who are passionately pursuing Jesus and imitate aspects of their life. Find those who have a insatiable passion for God's word. Find those who are serving him with conviction, sacrificially. Find those who are growing in the fruits of the spirit. Not perfectly, none of us have this perfect. Paul didn't. Timothy didn't. Epaphroditus didn't. For us today, find these people and spend time with them. Ask them questions. Take them out for coffee. Find these people and study God's word with them. Find these people and read good books together. Find these people and spend time in their homes with their families to see how they interact together, both the good and the bad, what to imitate, what to avoid. Find these people and work with them, serve alongside them for the good of the kingdom and imitate Christ's likeness in them. Younger people, younger followers of Jesus, find more experienced followers of Jesus and seek to imitate them. Get to know them. Understand who they are. See the patterns of their lives that you should imitate. Older followers of Jesus. Find younger believers that you can get to know, that you can take along with you as you pursue Jesus together. And then don't just believe that you have something to say to them, that you have something to give to them, but believe that they have something to give to you as well. Find aspects of their lives you can imitate. This is the wonder of the church, which God is creating, which God has given to us. We are to foster a culture of imitation, which is multi-generational for the good of the kingdom. Find people in your life that you can imitate, but also, And please don't see this as me saying something crass. I know it sounds a little bit weird. Find dead people to imitate. People who have passed on have much to say to us. In your study of the scriptures, you're naturally going to find people to imitate. Our faith is one steeped in history. We stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us and pursued the same things that we're chasing after together. Hebrews chapter 12, verse one, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses who are cheering us on from eternity. The chapter before Hebrews 11 is the faith hall of fame where we have people listed, people like Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, in them and many others, we can learn a great deal and find much about their lives to imitate as they follow Jesus, not perfectly, They sought to serve him. Not only those in scripture, there are many other men and women who have lived their lives for the glory of God and served Christ throughout history that we can seek to imitate as well. 
One that's been significantly impactful for me, one man whose words and works I've come to treasure is Richard Baxter, an English Puritan pastor who lived in the 17th century. In his book, The Saints Everlasting Rest, he wrote this, my Lord, I have nothing to do in this world, but to seek and serve thee. I have nothing to do with a heart and its affections, but to breathe after thee. I have nothing to do with my tongue and pen, but to speak to thee and for thee and to publish thy glory and thy will. What have I to do with all my reputation and interest in my friends, but to increase thy church and propagate thy holy truth and service? What have I to do with my remaining time, even these last and languishing hours, but to look up unto thee and wait for thy grace and thy salvation? That's a heart I want to imitate. That's a life pursuit I want to chase after. If you're a follower of Jesus, I'm sure you do too. God's glory, his service would be my aim and my goal in everything, even up until my last days and hours. God has given us both the living and the dead, detailed in scripture and history and in our lives now to imitate as we pursue Christ, which flies directly in contrast to the world we live in, which is so individualistic. The gospel of self is trumpeted from the mountaintops in our world today. You find your own way. You do you. Serve your own passions. Find your own identity. We could go on and on, but that is not the call of Christianity. Imitate Christ. Imitate those seeking to imitate Christ. So my question for you, Christian, is, are you doing this? Are you living a life pursuant of Christ that's worth imitating? Are you looking actively for those around you that you can see aspects of their lives that are significantly better than yours in their pursuit of Jesus that you can imitate? Are you doing this? As Paul continues his argument, he proposes to us a contrast. Shows a difference between the examples worth following, those we should have our eyes on, with those we should be avoiding. See this secondly, as a citizen of heaven, I forsake the enemies of Christ. I forsake the enemies of Christ. Now, Paul was particularly emotional about this. You can see it in verse 18. Look down at it again. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, scholars debate as to who these enemies of the cross may be specifically, but we can gather based on Paul's grief and the sorrow that surrounds these people he's talking about, it's most likely that they were professing believers that were not truly walking with Jesus. They were pretenders. Not those living on the outside, not unbelievers, but those who professed to be Christians. But in reality, the aspects of their life and how they lived was no different than pagans. 
They stubbornly refused the way of Christ and his cross. They stubbornly refused to suffer for him, but instead indulged in a worldly and sinful pattern of self-service. Verse 19 tells us their end is destruction. These enemies of cross are destined to be destroyed. Death is their destination. They're not headed for heaven, but on a highway to hell. Their ways have them on the fast track to being forsaken forever. And Paul could have left it there. That's enough. But he goes on. Instead of serving God, their God is their belly. They serve their insatiable appetites, greedy and gluttonous, self-centered and self-indulgent, consumed by their own lusts, unable to discern what is right and what is wrong because they serve only themselves. And because of that, they glory in their shame. The things meant to be shameful, disgusting, and immoral become their glory. What they delight in, these things that should cause them great embarrassment are proclaimed proudly. What they should be calling evil, they call good. At the core of these enemies of the cross have their minds set on earthly things. Their focus is not the cross of Christ. But they are consumed with the fleeting pleasures of temporary earthly things so much that they are unable to grasp what is truly eternal and unchanging. Focused on this life far too much. And this is our world, is it not? You see this, don't you? Sinful acts are celebrated and broadcast around our world and across our screens. Sexual sin, idolatry, laziness, greed, disobedience to parents, disrespect to authority, hateful and angry speech, idolatry, all under this umbrella of the gospel of self, which, as we've said already, is proclaimed from the mountaintops. These people. These enemies of the cross are so focused on themselves and let me, let, let's make no mistake about it. They should live up their life as much as they want now, because this is as good as it's going to get for them. What is to come is far worse. Just because this way of living is pervasive in our world does not mean we adopt it. This is an example that cannot be followed by citizens of heaven. This is a pattern of life that must be forsaken by the followers of Jesus. As Christians are called to stand out in the world that we live in. And Paul told them of this often. He said it over and over again. And he now tells them again. This is the type of living that must be avoided at all costs. Jesus confirmed what is ours if we are his in his high priestly prayer. As he prayed to the father before he would go to the cross, John chapter 17, verse 16, he said, this is the reality for us if we're his, they, us, we as believers, all believers throughout history, we're not of the world. Just as Jesus says, I am not of the world. 
It's the moment you receive Christ as your savior, you are united with him. That is the moment that your citizenship is changed from this world to eternity with him. Your citizenship is transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And as we read in in 2 Corinthians, what fellowship has light with darkness? What business to those who have been what business do those who have been freed from the ways of destruction to a, a hope of light and life have to crawling back to those ways of death? No business. So citizens of heaven, we forsake the enemies of the cross. We're not chasing after the same things this world is chasing. We're not pursuing the same things our unbelieving friends and family members are. We're not dreaming the same dreams as this world is. We don't hope the same as this world. Instead, we imitate Christ. And we imitate those who imitate Christ because of the incredible reality that is ours in him. See this third, as a citizen of heaven, I believe the promises of Christ. That last point was heavy. I know this is wonderful. Look at verse 20 again. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now these words would have had some significant cultural importance for the Philippians. They lived in the city of Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony and its citizens were particularly proud of that fact. Roman colonies stood as examples, as representatives of the greater ideas of Rome. Philippi was set up like a miniature Rome. It was meant to foster Roman values and cultures in the land that they were established. All all part of the plan that Rome had to conquer the world and establish their ideas across the globe in a similar, but much greater way. Christians are are meant to exemplify the ways and values of our heavenly country. Because the citizenship that we receive from Jesus upon the moment of conversion, as we are, as we are indwelt with the Holy spirit is a significantly better one and trumps all the citizenships that we can have in this world all the things we might identify ourselves with. We are first and foremost ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world. Our churches are embassies for the kingdom. And in that we live out the values and mandates of the citizen of that kingdom. We have the promises and the benefits and the joys of that kingdom, which far outweigh anything in this world. His incredible book, Love Your Church, pastor and author Tony Morita wrote this. We are here so that the outside world will look at us and see something different and ask, you guys aren't from around here, are you? No, we aren't. Our citizenship is in heaven and we're waiting for our savior to come from there to here and make all things new. Too many Christians, too many churches are making so many compromises with our world today that they don't look anything different from the culture that they live in. 
Those churches are dying a slow death. Precisely because there is absolutely no point to them. If a church is not different than the world around them, then it serves no purpose. But for us, we're on mission here because we believe the promises of Christ. We're running the race of faith, imitating him and others as they pursue him, forsaking enemies of his because we know he's coming back and we're eagerly awaiting that. Because when he comes, listen, it's going to be unbelievable for us. Look at verse 21, that the Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Jesus's power will be on full display in the fulfillment of the promises that he has given to us. He will come back one day. And when he does, he will transform our bodies from what we have now stricken with sin and struggle, frustrated with sickness, burdened with grief, with mental, physical, emotional weakness. You know all of this all too well. We're groaning under the weight of all of this because this world is not our home. We're homesick. Like the kid at camp that doesn't enjoy anything while they're there because the difference of where they are and where they want to be is so great. The way things are is not the way it was meant to be. And we as believers and the whole world feels that. Romans chapter eight. But we have a savior who is coming back to make all of that right. That was pretty good. But that, like, I mean, that was a pretty good spot for all of you to say amen. Let's try that again. <laughs> we have a savior who's coming back to make all of that right. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. He's going to renew our bodies, transform our desires, our longings, the whole of ourselves. We'll still be recognizable. We'll be glorified like him, ready for eternity, fit for heaven. Where we will be with him. Can't wait. How's he going to do that? Well, his verse tells us by the same power that he will use to subject all things to himself. Jesus can and will because he has the power to subject everything under his control. It's the same power he has to make his enemies his footstool, Hebrews eleven thirteen. It's the same power he has to defeat even the final enemy, death itself, 1 Corinthians 15, 26. And if Jesus has the power over all of those things, he can take care of our lowly sinful bodies. But getting this right is critical. Getting this right is crucial if we're going to be effective in living for him here and now. The eternal view of the promises made to us by Jesus and his power to bring them about, put everything in this life into proper perspective. It emboldens, it empowers, it enlightens our mission and vision greater than anything else in this world. The more you set your eyes on the eternal realities that are yours in Jesus, the deeper 
You understand his promises in the core of who you are. The greater your effective and influence for the kingdom in this world. The more you get your eyes off of what is going on around you and more onto Jesus and to what he has established for us and to what he will bring about for us, the greater you will be in pursuing and living out his mission in the world. It's a natural byproduct of deepening belief in his promises. As 1 John 3, 3 says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he, Jesus, is pure. If you have hope in Jesus, the Savior who is to come, it purifies you. If it's true, it can't not. It purifies you from the ways of the world. It purifies you from sin and struggle, from the ways of the enemies of the cross. So we believe his purifying promises because he who promises is pure. And he alone has the power to do it. This is the hope of our lives. That he who promised is true. That nothing can thwart the plans and purposes of God. And as he has promised, he will bring about. So I trust him. So I believe him in his ways. And I respond by, see this finally, as a citizen of heaven, I stand firm in the work of Christ. With all of that incredible assurance, with the beautiful, wonderful realities of what he has promised to us, and with the confidence that we can have rolled out, Paul brings it to a conclusion. And I want you to notice the love that he wraps this final exhortation in. Look at chapter four, verse one. Therefore, after I've said all of this, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, my beloved, he says at the end of this verse. On the heels of all he's said, steeped with emotion, with incredible significance, Paul appeals to this church he cares deeply for, he loves he longs to be with as he separated from them. Those whose, whose imitation of him, whose continued pursuit of Jesus Christ brings him great joy while he is imprisoned and unable to serve as he would long to. Those whose continued endurance in the faith will bring him joy on the last day as he stands before the judgment seat of God. And as the Philippians and the work that they've done bring a reward to Paul and the work that he has done. He says this, stand firm thus in the Lord. Stand firm thus in the Lord. After all I've told you, after making the case for you to imitate me as I imitate Christ, as I've called you to forsake and abandon the ways of sinfulness and the enemies of Christ in light of the promises that Jesus has given you and the power that he has to bring them about, which is to come. Paul says simply endure. 
persevere. Don't stop. Stand firm on the foundation that you have. Remain steadfast in the work that you have been given. Don't allow the evil one a foothold. Don't move from the foundation of your faith. Stand firm in the face of fears, in the face of opposition. Stand firm. And that exhortation he gave to the Philippians years and years and years ago is the same for us today. If you're a citizen of heaven, stand firm. We'll be back to Revelation in two weeks when Pastor Todd returns. I love this verse, Revelation 14, 12, the end of the Bible. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Everything that's in the book of Revelation, it comes down to this. Will you endure? Will you stand firm? Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus, will you stay steadfast despite the test of your faith that is to come? Despite everything that this world and the enemies of of the cross might throw at you. In reality, this is the true indisputable evidence of the truth of our salvation. That you persevere. That you stand firm to the end. If you're truly his, you will. You will keep doing all that he has called you to do because of the union and fellowship that you have with him in Christ and the realities that are yours in him as a result. You will imitate those who imitate Jesus. You'll be naturally attracted to them. They're your brothers and sisters. Yeah, they might be weird cousins, maybe. But they're in Christ. You will endure in the forsaking of the ways of evil. The ways of the enemies of the cross. You'll draw strength and confidence. Be effective in the mission that he has given to you as a citizen of heaven. If you believe in the promises that he has given to you and the power he has to bring them about. You'll stand firm in the Lord. Despite what you face in all of these things. Because there is true joy to be found in our kingdom citizenship. And as Paul concludes this letter with Philippians chapter four, verse 19 and 20, he says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God has all you need to stand firm as a citizen of his. To our God and father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we long for these realities to be true of us. And we need you to bring them about. What else can we say in this moment? But thank you, Father, for the work that you have done on our behalf in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for your obedience to the plan of the Father and for going to the uttermost for those who did not in any way deserve. You've granted us citizenship in your kingdom. You have brought us in, adopted us into your family. And we know that that means some important things for us.
And many here know that means critical decisions for them. I pray for those here, Father, living without you, apart from you, distant and destined for destruction, who feel like they don't belong here. You open the door of salvation to them here this morning. I pray that they would see you for who you are and receive it. They'd step through the door, welcomed into your family, and by extension, welcomed into this family, your church here at Harvest. I pray for those here, Father, who are seeking after this, and yet the ways of the world and the struggle with sin have gotten victory over them today, this week. Thank you that you are a God whose grace and mercy is new for us every day. I pray that they would seek you in keeping with repentance, pursuing you above all else, that the realities of what are theirs in you, Jesus, would continue to penetrate deeper into who they are. The Holy Spirit would bring these things about in their lives. And for those here, Father, seeking to stand firm, experiencing your joy, even in the midst of difficulty and trial, I pray you'd encourage, uplift by your spirit. We need you for these things. Thank you, Father, for welcoming us into your family, for granting us citizenship in heaven. We glorify you in these things. In your son's name we pray. Amen.